Welcome to Context with Advanced Design. Context is a podcast space where laid-back conversations on design, life, and everything in between happen. In this show, we interview experts in our field, but also students, educators, and anyone who's part of the industrial design family. Thank you for tuning in, and here's today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Context with Advanced Design. My name is Hector Silva, and today we have the pleasure of having industrial designer, our next guest, Robert Bruner who is the founder and partner at Ammunition. Robert, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciated a little bit about Robert. Um, he founded the San Francisco-based design studio Ammunition in 2007 to communicate ideas through products, brands, and their surrounding experiences. His work as an industrial designer has spawned numerous brand-defining designs over the past three decades prior to founding Ammunition. He was partner at Pentagram and led strategic brand consulting and industrial design programs for Fortune 500 companies. Previously, he was a director of industrial design for Apple, where he established its pioneer, pioneer, pioneering, I'm sorry, internal corporate design organization, Apple IDG, which stands for Apple Industrial Design Group. Before joining Apple, Robert co-funded the design consultancy Lunar. So, Robert, again, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate you. My, my pleasure, Hector. My pleasure entirely. So, um, yeah, let's, let's kind of jump in. Um, you've been named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business. And um, I actually love that title because I think as designers, we always think that the world revolves around design. Yeah. And... Um, I'm an educator, and um, when I teach my students about design, I'm always talking about business. You need to learn about how the world functions, how business works, so that you as a designer have a seat at the table and you're able to get your ideas through. Yeah, exactly. I, it's, I always preach that with, with my team. I mean, it, in order to see your vision in the world, you need you need to be part of that machine and figure out how to work it and how to operate it and how to communicate with with people outside of your profession. So, um, understanding you know, everyone doesn't have to be deeply versed in in how business operates, but you definitely need to know how to communicate and contextualize things for people, and that's what I found to be being incredibly important. You know, throughout my career, just really sort of being able to get in there and be a leader with, with all the other functions it takes to deliver a product out in the world. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think that's essentially what separates a successful designer than someone who's just, you know, kind of, you know, stays in this bubble of design. Right. And, um, yeah, Yeah, I always say there's, um, a a really good designer can make one thing, right. And make it Mm -hmm. really well. It, a great designer figures out how to take that one thing and make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of it really well. And and part of that, of course, is technical of understanding the, the process of how to actually get something made and delivered. But part of it is social, right? It's really sort of, you know, of all those people along that chain that it takes to deliver something out into the world of being able to really work with them and work them and get, get you know, your vision out in the form you intended it to be in. And it very much is a social process to do that. Absolutely. And uh, for today's uh, conversation with you for uh, our podcast, we actually want to go back in time um, and go back to the early years of Robert Bruner. Who were you? How did you get started? How did you even learn about industrial design? And how did you end up at San Jose State? Um, yeah, that's a, just don't just let's just not say how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> no, I you know I as far as being a designer and wanting to be a designer, um, it, it, I didn't know that immediately. But you know, in retrospect, looking back through the, the lens of experience, I, in many ways I was raised to be one. You know, my mm. my father was a mechanical engineer, a very very successful and talented mechanical engineer. He invented um, much of the t- uh, mechanical technology inside um, disk drives at IBM. Um, wow. to the early Winchester disk drives. I literally grew up with these like 14 inch disk drives around our house in the garage. And, um, and he was super creative. And in, in fact, he, um, he 
designed the, the head of the mechanism that reads disk drives, he realized that it needed to fly above the surface of the disk. So he actually shaped it like a wing. So the head of mm. the disk drive actually creates lift, you know, which was an incredible, incredibly elegant piece of engineering. And, you know, he was always doing something. My mom was an artist. Um, she was a craftsperson. She was an entrepreneur. She started her own children's clothing um, store, uh, you know. And so, you know, I, I mean, I won't say our house was like, you know, Eamesian, but at the same time, it was, you know, everything was a project, right? It, it, I mean, even the Christmas, I would say the Christmas tree was a project. Every year it was different, right? It was for my mother, it was a piece of performance art, you know. And, and so, I grew up in this environment of, of, of makers and, and creators and, um, you know, but then, you know, when I was in high school, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I did fairly well in math and science, but I really excelled in art and all my shop classes. I mean, I, I really kicked ass in shop. Um, you know, but the, the high school counselors, they, they really didn't know about this thing called industrial design. And so they sort of said, ah, you're, you're, you give decent grades in math and science, you're an engineer, right? But you should study engineering. So that's what I did. You know, I thought my, um, I'd follow my father's footsteps. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a, about a year and a half studying engineering. I started out in civil engineering because I thought, you know, building bridges would be really cool. And, and then I heard oh, all the money's in electrical engineering. So I thought, oh, well, I'll change electrical engineering. And, and then um, I just became really dissatisfied with it. You know, I, w I wasn't doing bad, um, but, you know, it just didn't feel right. It just didn't feel like it was a rewarding experience for me. So um, I, I thought I'd rebel and against my dad because he loved it that I was studying engineering, mm -hmm. right? And, and um, I thought I would go over to the art department and, um, you know, follow my mom's footsteps, right? And um, I had this serendipitous thing. It was, you know, I think about what if it hadn't happened. I walked in the uh, certain building of the art department in the door, and there was a display case full of um, industrial design stuff, right? Renderings and models. And um, I stood there for a long time just staring at it and just like, no, this this is it, right? This is what I should be doing. I mean, I, I love building things. I was always working in the garage with my bike. I painted, I drew. Mm -hmm. I did all these things before I even got into art school and, and I just said, this is it. And I often wonder what if I, you know, walked into another door and, uh, <laughs> you know, became a sculptor, probably, you know, a starving artist today or selling cars yeah. or something. So, um, so, but you know, that's how I ended up in industrial design. It was a bit of a journey, but um, I feel really fortunate that I was able to discover that because once I got into ID, I, I sort of never looked back, um, you know, getting, mm -hmm getting A's was easy, right? Because it just was something that I, I felt really natural at and loved to do. So what you did is you essentially took both your parents, you know, disciplines and you married them. And that's essentially what I think industrial design and uh, design yeah. is it's a little bit of art. It's a little bit of, you know, engineering and somewhere in the middle, we exist, the sweet yeah. spot. Yeah, it's art, engineering, business. I mean, that was, was interesting when the curriculum at San Jose State was, you know, in addition to taking your design classes, you were taking classes in engineering school and you were taking classes mm -hmm. in the business school. And just, you know, it was really, you know, you began to realize that, you know, you were sort of hovering between those spaces like master of none, but you <laughs> you, you, you gained an understanding of how things work. That's, that's pretty, that's actually pretty cool. Um, but after working, you know, as a designer for several kind of high tech companies, you founded you co-founded Lunar Design in uh, back in 1984, and and as we know it, Lunar Design is one of the most prominent and prestigious design firms. If you look at design history, I know Lunar Design is now owned by you know McKenzie, um, but you were at the beginning of that, and that must be really exciting. Uh, it, it's 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 a great it's a great, it's a great part of my history. I mean, what what happened was. Um, so I graduated, I, I was actually working before I graduated for this design office in Palo Alto called GVO. Mm -hmm. It was one, at the time one of the larger offices around and that's where I met um, uh, Gerard Furbishaw, who um, I actually lived with him for a while and then Jeff Smith and, and we were there. We weren't really happy with sort of the, the, the creative direction and the management style of the office. So 
we started talking about it. In the meantime, I had, um, I was doing freelance work and um, I called it Lunar Design because it was moonlighting, right? So that was the, I mean, I've always been very good at naming. So, um, so I, I called my moonlighting business Lunar Design. And, uh, you know, we started talking more and more and decided we wanted, we were super naive, right? And, and we just said, well, let's just start our own company, right? Um, we initially started another company with an with a, with a older individual who was well-funded called Interform. Um, that just didn't work out for a lot of reasons. So we spun off into Lunar and just kind of went at it, you know, literally, you know, I, I think, um, I think I, you know, borrowed like $5,000 from my dad, you know, and that was our seed capital. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and just kind of went at it. And, and that, that's the beauty of, you know, being, being young is you just, you just go for it and you can live on nothing and just do it and make it happen. And, and I was glad we did that. And, and then we're able to start Lunar. How exciting was it to be, you know, this is kind of the beginning of, you know, some of our, our most famous design that comes out of West Coast. You know, you have, you know, Lunar, obviously you started that. And then you have other consultancies that kind of started around that time as well, uh, like Frog. And you, you're in Palo Alto, so you have IDO. And I mean, that must be like, you know, pretty Pretty awesome for a young designer to be surrounded by just immense potential. Yeah, it, it was really exciting. I remember, yeah, within you know steps of where we were, where before it was IDO was uh, we had ID two and and Matrix, and they formed together with David Kelly to do IDO, and and they were you know we would go out and have beers with those guys every night because we're all, I mean every week because we're all just sort of down the street from each other, um, and it was sort of a very it was very competitive environment, but very collegial, right? You know, just everyone kind of respected each other and, and what, what we do. And, and it was, you know, the foundation, we didn't realize it at the time, but it was the foundation of something that was really quite powerful here in, 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 in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, you know, I've read so much about uh, you and, and other designers kind of around that time. And I just can't imagine, I'm kind of waiting for a movie to come out with these untold mm -hmm. stories. And then, you know, it, it's just, it's really cool. I mean, I, I kind of geek out about this stuff, I think because I'm an educator and I like to really, uh, you know, whenever I, I, I teach and I talk to my students, I make sure that, uh, you know, these details about design, I always, they always resurface and how design evolved. And yeah, so I geek out about this stuff. So I'm yeah. sorry if I bring it up. No, no, it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was really exciting and really um, addictive, right? That uh, every project was some sort of step forward in terms of technology. Mm -hmm. It still is, right? I mean, we, most of our work in the studio is, is early stage companies and it's still, it is very exciting and addictive to be creating these new things that haven't been done before and, yeah. and figuring out how they're going to come out into the world. And, and back then it was, um, you know, it was much smaller. And so the, what the, you know, so the impact of one thing was even greater. Um, and, and it was, and it was a fantastic environment to learn in and make connections and, and grow as a professional. So let's fast forward a little bit into, um, kind of the late, you know, eighties, um, you came on and onto the industrial design team at Apple mm -hmm. and, um, you know, by that time, I believe Apple was still, I think Steve jobs was no longer there. Um, he had just departed and, um, Apple was still kind of contracting work out to consultancies and stuff like that. And then, there's an idea that came out, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this this was kind of your idea about starting an internal design team at Apple. Yeah. Um, and uh, was named, you know, uh, the Apple Industrial Design Group. Um, and you were the director of it. And um, again, uh, just more history. Mm -hmm. um, and you came on and you were part of this amazing you know, history of Apple, but also history of industrial design. Like, how did that all come about? I mean, that must have been really interesting because now you're dealing with a corporation. Yeah, no, it was it was a big change. I, I, well, I, so I when I was at Lunar, 
Um, I started working with Apple um, mm -hmm. through uh, an associate we had, and it was interesting. It was at the end of the frog design era, mm -hmm. and they were very afraid of frog in the contract that they had, so they wouldn't call our work industrial design. We were actually, quote unquote, everything was engineering work, but we were really doing industrial design. We were, we were um, exploring a couple new programs that were, were different new platforms. Uh, new, new computing and communication platforms and sort of doing design in support of that. Um, so through that, and, and, and so as the frog relationship ended, um, then we started working on some um, programs intended to market. Um, the, probably the most significant one was the Macintosh LC, which was mm -hmm. a, like one of the, prior to the iMac, you know, probably the highest volume computer ever made. And Anyways, began to building a relationship. And then one day I, I get this call from a headhunter saying they were looking for a new director of the design team. And I, and as you said, what was happening at that point is there were, there was a variety of consultants working with Apple, including Lunar and, and a few others uh, under some sort of loose, loose internal management, a very small group sort of focused on, on managing those, those group, those consultancies. And, um, I, you know, so I was approached and at first I said, no, um, you know, I didn't really want to go somewhere and manage other people doing the creative things. Cause that's what I wanted to do. I didn't you know, want to be in that position. Uh, and so I said, no, I'm, I'm enjoying where I am. I'm going to stay here and continue to build on this. We've just sort of been going at this about five years. So, uh, so they went away and then came back a few months later and said, no, no, we really want you. Um, what? what would it take for you to take this job? And I thought about it and I said, well, look, you know, I think Apple could support a world-class design team as much as any company in the world. So if you want to build that, then I'd be interested. And they said, okay, well, let's do that. Right. And I learned this sort of lesson of, you know, be sure to ask what for what you want, but also be careful what you ask for. Right. And because um, it was a big undertaking. But but I, you know, it was funny. I remember thinking and, and telling someone that, um, you know, I was young enough to make a big mistake. Right. Um, so, you know, I have time to recover if this blows up in my face and I fail. So why not? Um, mm -hmm. And so I, so I did um, left, left Lunar. Um, Jeff and Gerard, you know, at the time weren't happy about it, but they understood and we remained friends. In fact, I continued to work for, with them for a while. Um, yeah, and so I just went in and said, look, you know, how are we going to create this, this design studio within this, this corporation, right, which I always found to be one of the biggest challenges of, as I understood, corporate design is sort of how do you maintain creativity and in some ways insulate the team from all the demands of the corporation, right, and, 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 high, and bring in really high-level creative talent into that, into that. And that, that was the big challenge. So I set off on trying to figure that out. So, I mean, you had just co-found this Lunar and then you came into Apple and it's almost like you are, you know, kind of in that um, entrepreneurial mindset of, okay, I got to do things. I got to hire people. I got to bring on talent. I got to go and scout for, you know, building this, yeah, you know, world-class design team. Find a studio in the campus all that yeah. yeah find the space like um so you you were acting as a director and i'm assuming you were also working at the same time while you were doing all this yeah. simultaneously yeah. so um i mean what are some things that you um what are some obstacles that you hit uh, kind of navigating through this corporate environment yeah well there were a lot you know and and sort of getting things done and getting permission that you know i i learned something from somebody once, and it's a very famous saying, but it's true. It's like, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would um, go at it with this almost naive attitude of this is what I need, I, I need, so I'm gonna make make it happen and figure that out. So like our, our space, right? I kind of found an empty building, kind of negotiated under a table, some budget to do the design, kind of, you know, made things, got all the pieces together and then went to my management and said, you know, hey, I've got this set up, I'm gonna make this happen, okay, you know, and just kind of, you know, tried to keep it really low key um, and just, you know, sort of keep, you know, identifying the, the problems or the challenges and keep knocking them off and figuring it out, you know, and, and I, I mean, one of the initial challenges was, you know, 
attracting talent and and getting people to believe that even though it was a corporate job, it was going to be a highly creative job, right? Because yeah. I, I think at that time, there weren't many really creative internal design studios in, in large corporations. And so um, I, I ran a series of ads on the back of ID Magazine in which we, we did the of wacky prototype concepts, um, did some amazing photography and just did these full page images. So we really was sort of following in what, what Esslinger used to do a frog and just started to set this idea out there that no, there's something really interesting going on here. And it worked and they managed to start to create some energy around the fact that, that working at Apple, you know, could be a really great career move for, for people that were interested in, in, in doing exciting design. Did you attract any talented designers? Oh yeah. No, I mean, look at, well, of course, Johnny was one of them. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, Danny Julius. I mean, there's a whole list of the, a lot of the guys, you know, are still there or were still there until recently, you know, that we, we brought into the team and, um, it, uh, you know, it took work, but, um, I, you know, I think we, I was focused on keeping the standards high and, 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 and structured the team in a way. So we had a, a group, part of it was the creative studio and part of it were a group of managers who, 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 ran the relationships with the different divisions. So, you know, my, my goal was to, again, try and maintain the time and energy around creation as opposed to communication and, and dealing with, with constant inputs, right? So, um, so we set up structure, hired people, and, you know, it, it, took, it took a few years to get it working, but it, but it did. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think it actually worked out pretty well. So, I mean, I think now we're pretty used to having uh, a lot of these companies have uh, internal design teams and, and the work is amazing. But back, you know, back then it wasn't like that. You know, it was actually kind of unusual to to have internal design teams. You had uh, these companies that would hire out uh, consultancies and a lot of consultancies were being fed this work. And that's how they, you know, that's how business works. Um, so what 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 was the purpose uh, when you started and you when you pitched this idea to Apple uh, was the purpose to really create quality and control, you know, everything internally as opposed to, you know, kind of sharing it out to to other consultancies? Um, well, I guess there was two purposes. I mean, at the base level was just to do do great work. Right. And, yeah. and what does mm -hmm. it take to do work? And 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 I felt that, you know, we being Apple should own that, right? You shouldn't, yeah. we shouldn't have this, this, you know, center of excellence that you develop sitting in other companies, right? It should be sitting here. And, and as I said, the, at the time, there's, there were a lot of corporate design groups, but the, the work tended to be pretty dry and tended to be, you know, innovative, but not in the ways that I wanted it to be. So, you know, part of the problem is how do we structure and staff a team so you don't fall into that gap where things just sort of get numbed down a bit because of because of the corporation itself. And and so that that's what that was the, the, the structure and the impetus of the team is just let's let's just do some really amazing work and let's figure out how to get it through this system and out into the world. Yeah. Now, you brought up Johnny Ive, and I think that was probably uh, a designer that we had to talk about um, because there is no Johnny Ive without Robert Bruner. Um, but according to you, I think it was a, a an article that I wrote. Um, you claim that while at Apple, you hired Johnny Ive three times. And um, that is confirmed because I've read his book and he talks about how he was a tangerine and then he contracted and then he came back, etc. But I would love to know you know, um, what did Johnny Ives said? Like, oh, I'm sorry. What did he say in his interview with you or any conversation with you that really made you hire him the first time? Well, it was, I mean, I didn't hire him three times. I tried three times, right? Okay. 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 So, um, well, you know, I, I, I met Johnny when I was at Lunar. Mm-hmm. And he was on a bursary scholarship. He went to Newcastle Polytechnic and they would award a student a scholarship, which they would travel around and visit people and, you know, get to get to see the world and understand what was going on in design. So he came to our studio and, and 
Um, and, you know, thinking about it back then, I mean, I actually received a, a handwritten letter, right? That asked <laughs> to do this visit, right? And, and, um, he, and so I set up the appointment and we talked on the phone, I think once, and then he came and um, he was, you know, just the uh, young, super polite, um, very, very good energy about him. And, um, but what I was entirely blown away by was his work and that he had, his portfolio was really beautiful, really well done pieces, but they were all entirely figured out technically. All, in fact, remember we had this phone that he had designed and I watched him disassemble the model. Everything had been designed inside and out, right? Not just, not just it wasn't a solid appearance model. It was entirely shelled and he opened it up and he'd mocked up all the components inside and figured out how it would go together. And, um, you know, and, and I'd never seen anything at that high level in both fronts, right? From the, both the aesthetic and the technical from, from an individual. And so, you know, he went back to finish up school um, and, and, you know, I'd sort of made, you know, made him an offer then and he was wanting to go back and do school. And then after I went to um, Apple, I, he was like the first call I made, you know, can I get you to come and work at Apple? And he had just started Tangerine and said, no, I just okay. got this thing going. I want to make it work. So I, I, I did something that was, a, um, I wouldn't call underhand, maybe a little sneaky. I hired Tangerine to do a project. <laughs> it was a conceptual study mm-hmm. and got them to come out and Johnny and one of the other guys to present the work and, you know, and just made, made the pitch again. And, and, you know, he was in California and could see it and, and feel the energy of the studio. And, um, and so the third time he said, yes, and um, brought him over to, to be one of the design team. Eventually he was managing the creative studio and um, just, you know, an incredible individual to work and partner with and, and have, you know, on, on your team. And, um, and when I left, the company, I uh, I recommended that he he take over managing the team because he was, you know, by far had the the strongest leadership capability of anybody on the team at that time. So, and fortunately, they listened to me. So, that's amazing. That is a a very awesome story. Do you still keep in touch with Johnny Ive or any of these other designers that worked on that team up until recently? Uh, yeah, you know, Johnny and I remain friends. You know, we we text each other a lot you know, talk on the phone every once a quarter or so, or get together, have, have some drinks, you know. Um, no, we've sort of, uh, we, 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 you know, it kind of went away for a while when he was you know, super deep into building the company with, with Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the recent years, especially since the acquisition of Beats, um, we, we mm-hmm. communicate pretty regularly and it's nice. It's nice to have that, that, that long, long tenured relationship. That's really cool. Um, that is, uh, again, still geeking out about this. That's really awesome. You left Apple shortly after all of this happened. You um, recommended Johnny Ive to then take over. And then you went and you uh, became partner at Pentagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, now this is a, you know, whole, you know, you went back to consultancy. Yeah. Um, Pentagram, another amazing studio, um, works with a lot of big companies. You guys do amazing things there. Um, Tell us about your experience there. What was it like? I mean, it must have been yeah. totally different because uh, Pentagram is based in the East Coast. Uh, well, there's offices yeah, in, in the U.S. and New York. There's an office in Austin. Um, the original office is in London. There's an mm-hmm. office in Berlin. Um, yeah, I, was, um, I wasn't planning to do that. You know, I was I had gotten to the point where um, I wanted to move on from Apple. It just wasn't at that time a lot of fun with everything that was going on in the company. And I thought I'd start another studio, right? But honestly, at that time, I wasn't like that excited about renting a space and leasing a copier and <laughs> doing all the things you had to do, right? And um, I was at a, uh, a luncheon at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, and I sat next to Kit Heinrichs, who's a Pentagram mm. partner. And he gave me the old, hey, we're looking to bring on an industrial designer. Do you know anybody, right? And that was obviously a little bit of a subterfuge. <laughs> but, um, and I said, yeah, as I thought about, you know, I had this um, when I was in school, you know, I had a lot of people that I that, that I was inspired by. And one of them, one of them was Kenneth Grange. I literally when I was remembering my first job, I found a book of his work 
for Kenwood, the appliance manufacturer in, in our library, and just thought it was really amazing work. So my, my, one of my ideas or equities about Pentagram was product design in Kenneth Grange. Now he was one of the original five of the Pentagram partners. Um, so I was very interested um, and, and joined and was able to, you know, go into an office in San Francisco that existed and um, have the sort of infrastructure of the company set up and the, the power of the Pentagram brand to take advantage of. And, uh, and, and really loved it. It was 12 years, um, amazing people, amazing work, um, just uh, the um, camaraderie and, and the, 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 the group of partners and how we worked together was incredible. Um, and, you know, I, I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. And I think, though, as time wore on, I began to realize it wasn't quite the right platform to do what I wanted to do. I mean, in, in many ways, I was, um, I was really the only person in the company that did what I did in industrial design. There wasn't another industrial designer, Danny Vile, but he did a very different kind of work. And so I began to feel like a small boutique within this larger company that was largely driven by, by visual design and brand work and communication work. So um, that's when I decided to leave and form ammunition, um, which was really interesting there. I think I was actually the only partner that ever quit. Um, <laughs> everybody, the only other way you left the company was you either um, were fired or died. And so I was like the first like living person to walk out the door and quit, but, but, it, but it was good. Everyone understood and, and it was amicable. And you know, I yeah. literally took my team from, Pentagram and like the next day we were ammunition because you know, wow. all my clients, well, all my clients were industrial design clients. There was no one that could take over the work. Right. Um, well, my employees were industrial designers. There was nowhere else to go in the office. So it just, it, it was all, all became very clean and, and, and everyone was pretty supportive. It's a good organic transition there. Um, yeah, that, that's amazing. And, and you've been doing ammunition, you know, for 13, 14 years now. And, um, that must be really exciting. Um, you know, I, I always, um, I mean, I know ammunition as a student, uh, but also as a professional, as an educator, I visited ammunition, our organization, Advanced Design, had an event there this past, well, last year prior to COVID. Um, wonderful space, which you're sitting in right now, just amazing. And um, I would love to know, what is it like to work in one of the most competitive design markets in the world, San Francisco, Bay Area. I mean, you've been there with Lunar. I mean, you've, you haven't really moved essentially and you continue to stay uh, busy and relevant and, and you continue to, um, you know, come out with innovative products. What, what is it like? Is it, um, is it hard? Uh, um, I always hear students say, Oh, you know, I want to intern in the Bay Area. I want to go over there. And, and I, I don't think they understand the complexity that comes with that strategy. Well, it, it, I think it is challenging for a lot of younger people to break in because, you know, I mean, for us, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's not hard at the same time. I think, you know, we've, mm -hmm. um, I mean, we, we have a very, I think, acute understanding of what makes us work. And, and oftentimes, will say we're not in the design business, we're in the talent business, right? And, and, you know, and bringing on and developing talent is just key to what we do, right? And, and it's always, and I always, um, you know, it always reverts back to the work. My, my, my business partner, Matt Rollinson, has this great statement that, you know, about values is that, you know, you should do what you believe is right, even if you're punished for it, right? <laughs> and, and that's kind of the way we feel about doing really good work is just always always keeping the emphasis on that and then what's supporting that is is the talent that we we, we bring on and, and train and and so you know we we market ourselves we you know in, in our own way and we, we develop business relationships but you know again we feel like if we continually do good work that is that that matters and is is commercially successful um will continue to do well and that's 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 always been the way the office has survived and grown is just by continually focusing on that there's so many things to do in running a business and running a consulting business and it's it's sometimes really easy to just get away from things that make you powerful which ultimately is the quality of the output 
to do. Yeah, and uh, while you were at Ammunition, you also worked on the um, Beats brand, which kind of started with you know yeah. Dr. Dre and um, you know other other people involved. And uh, you know, it's really funny how kind of full circle is. Uh, you know, you were a part of uh, the you know very instrumental in starting the internal team at Apple, and then you collaborated with with Dr. Dre on Beats, and then. Beats was then sold to Apple, um, you know, later on. So I thought, I, I just think that that's a pretty funny kind of, you know, it's just yeah. funny how things work. Yeah, there's, there's two things in that that are interesting. One was um, the very first meeting we had with Dre, um, you know, he made this statement, which literally I wrote down and we put on the box, which was, you know, people aren't hearing my music, right? Um, and, you know, what he meant was, you know, I, I spend all this time crafting a song and it goes out into the world. And then he said this, and then people listen to it through crappy white earbuds, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward, you know, the, the crappy white earbud company ends up ends up buying them. Um, <laughs> the other one was shortly after the acquisitions, I got a call from Johnny and, you know, he's, he made that comment that, well, this, this is an ironic full circle event, right? It just sort of comes around. And, you know, even though I was not really working for Johnny once Beats was acquired, there was that sort of hierarchy of the Apple ID studio and the work that we were doing. So it's just really funny how things work, like you said, yeah. and um, you just never know. You know, we we live in such a, especially industrial design, such a small community and you just never know how things will work out, how yeah. who will overlap with who. Um, but I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, one question that I have for you is, you know, you've, had a you worked on a lot of things you have a long career what is the one if you had one wish uh um on a project that you can do over again uh what would, what would that project be oh god that's, <laughs> that's a long list um you know that's the thing about i think if if you're any good you're you're never satisfied with the thing mm. that you did um uh you know, probably it was funny because I was just talking to someone about this. It would probably be the first Amazon Kindle. Mm. Um, we and and that design, I, I love that design, but we pushed very hard on it, and and the entire team um, really wanted to make a statement with the product, um, and so it was this very different, asymmetric, um, angular sort of uh, tablet that. Um, I think in retrospect was probably too much of a statement, right? In, in some ways it, it took away from the, the power of the fact that this was the first Amazon um, ebook, right? So, so that would be one that I, if I would go back, I, I might dial down the level of design that we put into it. I mean, and there's other ones, you know, that you look at and you think, you know, I missed an opportunity there. Again, it, it's super common, right? After something's done, you all, oh, I'm, I like a lot of creative people mainly see the flaws, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, you want to go back and correct them. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. I like that answer. I think as a designer, you're never like, okay, well, this project is done. It's over. Like, um, um, I'm, uh, you know, happy with it. And I, I've, I don't think I've ever heard a designer, I, all these interviews I've done, I think designers are always itching to iterate on something. And even if it, even if it is in its final you know, phase, it really never is in our eyes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the, again, there's always stuff you want to make better. I think the bigger ones is when you realized you were going down a path based on what you knew and then you turn, you figure out after it's done that maybe that was the wrong path. Those are the ones where you mm -hmm. kind of go, you know, I wish I could go back in time and, and make a different turn. Right. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately for me that those are kind of rare, but that it yeah. does. Happen. So I have a question uh, because you're actually very active on social media, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and that's how, you know, we, you know, kind of communicated at first. Um, why is it that designers and students nowadays, because I, I feel like we're spoiled. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, I, I think that this next generation of designers are... Um, pretty spoiled we have information like you know immediately we have we get to see images and 
designs and renders. And I mean, social media is full of renderings. Um, and as an educator, it's really hard to educate students to tell them like, you know, that's just noise. I need you to focus on this. If you're going to succeed in design, you can't be consumed by social media because that's just ideas, right? Yes. Um, but, um, you know, there's so many people that are trying to get famous on social media. They're yeah. chasing fame. They're chasing likes and follows. And yeah. they, they, they take that data and, and it, I don't know, it amplifies or it validates, like, I am a good designer, but, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, it's weird. Uh, it's, 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 yeah, it, it can create this sort of bubble, right? Where you, 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 you feel like you're, you're doing successful work because, you know, 7,000 people liked that picture I put up, right? So therefore it is good. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've been on, I, I've been on Instagram for a while. I started a, a new account recently because um, people were wanted to follow my personal account. And a lot of that's pictures of my kids in the house. So I didn't want that. So I, um, mm -hmm. so I created a new account. And, and I, what I realized is I had this incredible archive of stuff. I mean, I literally probably have a thousand posts I can put up of things that may not have seen the day or, or so I just started doing that. Um, not necessarily intending to create followers just because I, I, I enjoy it. I <laughs> like going back and looking at things and finding the things that were really cool and putting them out there. But, you know, to your point, I think that, um, you know, it's still about the, the, the thing that you're making, right? If you're, if you're an industrial designer, yes, doing cool renderings or animations or visualizations are, are great as part of the process and, and communicating ideas and getting people excited about it. But in the end, you still have to produce something that has a purpose, um, that performs that purpose well, that um, people are excited about being involved with and experiencing, that holds value in their lives, that um, is beautiful. You know, all, you know these, those are the things that matter, right? Um, all the other artifacts are just, just a part of getting there. So, so mm -hmm. and it's something that remains the same as the day I started my career a no. long time ago. <laughs> I won't say how long. Um, so, you know, it, you're right. It, 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 it can be a bit of an illusion, mm -hmm. right? And, and like I was saying before, you know, the uh, part of the skill is, is, is crafting the thing, but part of the skill is making it happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and social media may help you in that, but it's not the end all. The end, yeah. the end is still still producing, you know, products that, that really improve people people's lives in a way that matters. Absolutely. And uh, that's very well said. And I am going to make sure that my students <laughs> uh, understand this. And, you know, coming from you, it, it definitely, like, helps this message of, hey, social media, it might get you noticed and it might help you, you know, um, get noticed by maybe hiring managers but at the end of the day you need to know how to ship products how to how things work how they get manufactured but um, yeah one thing i also wanted to ask you as someone who's been involved in headphones and you know um someone who has worked at apple and, and kind of knows how that works what are your thoughts on the new um apple <laughs> headset that came out uh late in 2020 the i think they're called the apple air, air max airpods, AirPods max yeah, yeah. yeah um i think it's an amazing product it's it's an incredible piece of design and engineering it, it performs incredibly well a lot of new things i mean headphones are hard right i mean yeah. designing a headphone is um you know it's 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 there's so many components to it in terms of um, fit, the ergonomics, comfort, uh, reliability, um, adjustability, acoustics. And then on top of it, I, the thing that we, we cracked the code with Beats was, you know, realizing that these headphones are wearable technology, right? And they are in fact fashion. If you put them on your body, you should feel good about it. And so that was really a lot of the impetus on the on, on the first Beat Studio was 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 solving that issue of something that works really well but also looks really cool on and that people want to wear out on the street and mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, so back to the AirPods Max, everything that they've done is an incredibly difficult thing, right? Um, in, in terms of the, the structure of the headphone, the, the, the cushion, how it's produced, the acoustics, um, the sensors, everything that's in that is um, an incredible amount of work to make work well. So I, I think it's, it's, it's an amazing product. Um, and they, they, did, they did a great job. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, this is not just Apple. I think any company or studio that comes out with products in the market, um, we are, we're very quick to immediately criticize design. Oh, this is too expensive. This is bad. And, you know, let's compare it to something else. Um, it might be our human flaw that we just dislike everything yeah. and we, we judge everything. And I think we forget that there's actual people and years and money involved. And there's people from different disciplines who have worked on this and other products, uh, you know, that, that exist. I mean, I think we, we forget that there's actual ideas behind it and, and um, compromises and obstacles. And yeah. um, it, it's just really funny that, um, you know, I mean, you on YouTube and everyone's trying to be a YouTube star by criticizing everything. And I think there's one YouTube star that he's built his whole like YouTube empire by just be saying yeah. the negative things about every product that has ever existed. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's human nature. I mean, I always said that um, it's a lot easier for people to talk about what's wrong, wrong with something than what's right. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I think the thing that it really bothers me is the, the snarkiness, right? There, it's one thing to be critical. It's another thing to just to be downright snarky and, and, yeah. and insulting about things, which I, I just you know, turn it off, right? I mean, if I, if, if, I, if I get someone making a comment on any of my stuff that is just that way, I just, you know, shut them down. It's like, I don't need it. So, you know, yeah. you're not going to be my follower of mine anymore. Yeah. Um, so, but, but it's, it is, it, it is, it, it's, it is, it is a human thing, but it does happen. But I think over time, I mean, I used to remember early in my career when, when one of my designs got criticized, it really upset me. Right. I would just mm -hmm. like think about it for days and days, not so much anymore. You know, I, you know, everybody has an opinion. Everyone's uh, welcome to their opinion. As long as I feel good about what I've done and I think it's right, um, then it's, it's fine. Uh, you know, I think the other thing that's always challenging is that, um, most people don't know what, what went into something and the decisions that you had to make and the compromises you had to make, you know, for example, to get it out at a price that people will be willing to pay for it. Right. So, um, that's hard, but, but, you know, but in the end, I, it doesn't matter. Right. I, um, I always say that in our internal meetings, when we're, you know, debating about an internal reason we can't do that. I always say, well, you know, the customer doesn't give a shit. They, <laughs> they mm -hmm. just want, they just want a good experience and good value for their money. They, they won't understand that we had this operational issue that wouldn't allow us to make a better product. And, yep. and they don't want to hear that excuse, right? They just want a good product. So I, I think it, 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 the other side of it is that you should always be aligned on making something that's really good for people and good value. And yes, you'll have to make compromises, but just always keep focused on that. And then when the work gets out, someone doesn't like it, you're just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah, that person doesn't have to buy the Cybertruck or the PlayStation 5. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, I'm going to wrap up this meet, uh, this this conversation that we're having with you with, with one last thing. And it's about a book that you actually co-authored uh, you know, a couple of years ago called Do You Matter? How Great Design Will Make People Love Your Company. And uh, this is a actually a really good book because I own it. And it is, um, it's on Amazon for those who are listening. We can link it uh, at the end of this uh, interview. But um, I would love to hear a little bit about that book. Um, and I also want to ask you, are you, are you ever, or are you considering ever kind of making another book maybe about these really cool um, stories and these little like moments of your early kind of uh, upbringing and design and how everything happened. Kind of like, you know, yeah. the story of Robert Bruner. And, um, you know, I, I think that's really cool to, to, to read. Well, that's really, that's really kind of you to say, I don't know if anyone else would be interested in that book. Um, <laughs> 
Although, you know, and, and the story's not over yet. So maybe um, when, when I feel like right. it's over and there's something to tell, I'll, I'll do that. Um, do You Matter was really interesting. Um, it, you know, it kind of, I, I met this guy named Stuart Emery who co-wrote the book mm -hmm. with me. And, and he had worked on a couple books in, in the Built to Last series. And, you know, he, he became interested in design and we had a few conversations and he said, you know, there, there's a book here. Um, and, you know, because, and, and what we wanted to do was create a book, not for designers, although designers seem to like it, but it's really for someone in the business world that needs an understanding how, of how, does, how design works and why it's important. And so that's where the do you matter came from, right? It's, it's sort of, you know, yeah. my opinion is if you follow good design practice as an organization you, and do good product, you will matter in people's lives. I mean, I used to um, lecture, sometimes when I'd lecture to students, I used to ask this question um, to the class, um, you know, how many people care if Dell goes out of business tomorrow? And like maybe one person would raise their hand, right? And then I'd say, how many people care if Apple goes out of business tomorrow? And everyone would raise their hand, right? And I'd say, well, why? Why do you care so much? Why do you care about this company? And they'd talk about, well, how it made them feel and the things that it did for their life and how it changed something or how, you know, all these things that, that it made their life better, right? And, and those were all directly connected to the design of the things that people put out into the world. And it was beyond just capability for a price. And so, you know, we decided to write this book about that, right? And how you actually get there as a company. I always found it interesting that a lot of companies go off and create things without sort of understanding what they're really doing, right? They're just putting things out into the world, you know, but it just makes sense that you should think about it strategically about this thing and what it is and how you go about making it really good. Well, uh, with that being said, again, I want to thank you so much for your time to coming on to Context and talk about kind of your um, early upbringing and your startup with with these. Again, this is just me geeking out, but I think these are like really important moments in design history um, that we will be talking about for a really long time um, because these are giants that you've worked with. The work that you've done has been amazing and has impacted um, how we function um, in our community and as human beings. So thank you so much for being at the forefront of so many innovations that I think a lot of us don't even know that we've used uh, some of your designs. So it's pretty cool to be here talking to you about about design and about design history. Well, well thank you. No, actually, I, and I appreciate the opportunity and, and, and really happy to do it. And uh, for those who are listening, thank you so much. And we will catch you at our next episode. Thank you for joining us today. Let's continue this conversation on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Discord. You can find us at Context with Advanced Design on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Context is produced by Advanced Design with editing and production by Betuel Benitez and music by Shaide from Pixabay.